You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. There's always an edge. And the simplest way to define it is that it's that edge between what you know and what you will soon know, or what's known and not unknown if you want to simplify it that way. And what's interesting about those places is that whether we believe it or not, we're drawn to them. And the reason we're drawn to them is that there's always something more we'd like to know, or there's always something more we think, or we feel like we're getting hints we could do better, differently, in a more fulfilling way, whatever it might be. That was Larry Robertson, the author of two award-winning books and a return guest to the podcast. He joins me for a conversation on growth, creative edges, play, uncertainty, and how our relationship with our work changes as we do it longer. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Larry, thanks so much for joining me again on the second episode that you've joined me on the Productive Flourishing Podcast. I'm really excited about what we're going to get into. Me too. It's my favorite place to hang out. Cool, cool. All right. So what we're doing today is um, really extending a post that you wrote on productive flourishing. And this is an experimental thing, guys, because what, we, what we've talked about is um, we're really about conversation, right? And really productive flourishing is about an extended conversation. And so rather than just being like we write a post and the conversation is done, you know, we can use those posts to seed other conversations, and that's where we get the most insight and epiphany. So that's what we're doing today. And the thing that we're talking about is what to do when you come up to that growth edge um, that, that you're going to come up to when you're out in creative exploration. And so you've experienced this before, right? You are doing something new. It's magical. It's wondrous. Um, you know, it's got a lot going on. And there's a period of time in which the curiosity and the wonder and all of that will fuel you. But then there's a period of time where you go so far to the edge of what's unknown or unfamiliar or uncomfortable that you get stuck. You either get stuck because you're afraid or you get stuck because you just don't know how to go forward. And a lot of times that's where growth can stop. And so what we're talking about today is what to do when you come up against that creative edge, right? You've gone so far afield that there are no bridges to go back over and you're in that space. So um, Larry's written a post about this. Um, We'll link to it in the show notes. um, But in case you want to know what it is and you're adept at Google searching, it's called Three Growth-Oriented Ways to Explore Your Creative Edge. And um, we're just going to talk about what that is and, and give some examples and talk about it at different levels, because that's the beauty of it is it's not just about a particular task or a particular project, but it might be your life or your career. So, Larry, again, um, thanks for joining me. But, you know, this is something that you wrote, so I actually want to pull it in. So what are the three ways to explore that creative ed board or the three steps you got to take to do this? Yeah, l- you know, it's interesting what you just laid out for everybody who's listening. And so before I jump to those three steps, I think this is an interesting way to think about edges. There's always an edge. 
And the simplest way to define it is that it's that edge between what you know and what you will soon know, or what's known and not know, unknown if you want to simplify it that way. And what's interesting about those places is that whether we believe it or not, we're drawn to them. And the reason we're drawn to them is that there's always something more we'd like to know, or there's always something more we think, or we feel like we're getting hints we could do better, differently, in a more fulfilling way, whatever it might be. And the more we get drawn to that edge, the scarier it can be because what we're doing is basically asking ourselves to step outside our comfort zone. That's the known part. And to explore into something else. And I think the thing that makes us so fearful of these edges is this expectation we put on ourselves that when we cross over our edge, that either one, we're going to have to understand it all from the, the very first look at this new stuff. Or two, that instead of putting a toe over that line, it's got to be some kind of big leap to something fantastic. And really, you know, if you, if you realize that those edges are always there between what you know now and what, what could be, what's possible, and you treat it more in a putting your toe over the line kind of way, you make it your habit rather than a solution to some big problem you have, something you go to in a panic, that edge actually becomes less scary. The way I think about it, Charlie, is people often anticipate that edge as though it's going to be a cliff, and it usually turns out to be more like a curb. So I think knowing that there there is that edge around everything, and that's what it's made up of is a really important thing, coupled with that second realization that we we want to go there. We're built that way. That's where we get, you know, what what Dan Pink talks about that that we need in everything we do, a certain sense of autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And maybe not in the grandest way we use those words, but in that sense of, yeah, I get some say in what I'm doing or what I'm doing next. That's the autonomy. I'd like to feel like I can conquer that. That's the mastery. And I'd like to feel like it matters. That's the purpose. So this edge is not only a natural thing, it's a really, really important thing. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because what's coming up, and this I'm going to mix metaphors here, but that happens sometimes, is um, I think to be a creative person is to exist in tension. And since we're all creative people by being human, right, we right. all exist in attention. And the reason I say that is because on the one hand, we want to push the edge. We want to grow to that edge, but we have a competing tension, it seems, to be masterful at something, mm-hmm. right? And so I've seen plenty of creative folk that actually won't um, spend the time, the butt and seat time to become masterful at something mm-hmm. because um, they feel like they have an aspirational identity about pushing the edge. And you can't, their feeling is you can't push the edge and be masterful at the same time, mm. right? And I think that's a, totally like false bifurcation there, right? Um, or it's, it's, it's an either or option that you don't have to have, right? You can say, my edge is practicing depth and mastery. And what mm-hmm. you find is that you think you know something until you push the edge of mastery, and then you realize how much you don't know just by focusing on that one thing. So I'm talking to the creative people who might be, you know, Renaissance souls or multi-potentialites or whatever label makes sense for you is you might be thinking like, okay, um, yes, I'm, I'm super digging this idea of exploring new fields all the time. Mm-hmm. 
But instead of thinking about exploration and your edge being like you're pushing a fence boundary like out, you can also think about pushing your growth edge being going down, like digging deeper in the work that you already have. There are two different ways to grow if you wanted to think about that. So just something to think about. And what you'll find is when you dig down, it has the same sense of unknown and exploration as growing out in the way that you sure. might normally think. Sure. So you don't have to switch from being a a fine artist to being a, you know, um, philosophical, you know, economics person, right? You don't have to explore different fields of knowledge yes. to have the same sense of exploration and wonder and unknownness to it. It's interesting too, Charlie, to the, the first part of your point, how often we uh, either put ourselves in a position or, or feel like our environment puts us in the position of saying, you got to be in control or you've got to be creative. And the irony here is that we're always both. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think of it as, you know, if you want to, if you want to talk about that um, part inside your edges, inside your borders, the known side, that's your order side. Like I know how my life is ordered. I know how to do this kind of work. I know how to complete that thought because I've done it before because it's familiar. And just outside that edge is your open side. You're open to maybe a different way to do it. And I always find it so interesting that most of what I read, most of the the things that are created as tools to advise people what to do about this conflict is to choose one side or the other. And the irony is we're always both. So it's this dance between the two, between that order and open. And the balance not only is different for every single person, for each individual, it's different at different times. So I, it, when we put ourselves in that position of saying, oh my, I gotta be all one or all the other, we're really denying another part of ourself that usually helps us solve the imbalance. I'm so glad you mentioned that. It, it reminds me of um, a concept in um, Jonathan Field's book, Uncertainty. And he talks about certainty anchors, right? And a certainty anchor is exactly what it sounds like. It's one of those things that 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 gives you that sense of certainty. I wouldn't go as far as to say control because that's what we create, but um, it gives you that. And and what we've noticed, I've noticed and I've talked to him about it, is the more uncertain parts of your life are, the mm -hmm. more you need certainty anchors to ground you to those. And so you have to be intentional about this, though. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I think, um, Larry, we both experienced um, what we might say is the dysfunctional creative change maker that has no certainty anchors whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And it's just a, a, you know, Tasmanian devil of creative energy <laughs> wherever they go. And it's a lot of motion, but no progress. Sure, sure. Right? And I think as you, or as you study more and more um, successful, accomplished, practiced, creative people, you notice that there's either meditation or there's exercises, there are exercise or there's key relationships, there's core practices, there's something that gives them to, to your point of they pick like this is where I'm going to go and and explore these uncertain terrain, mm -hmm. and these are the points where I just know what I'm going to have for breakfast. I know mm -hmm. um, I'm wearing right now. Um, Larry can see it, but I've got a hoodie that says at Charlie Gilkey on it, and he can't see what's below it, but it's just some Under Armour sort of track pants, right? Um, every day I wear basically the same thing. I don't feel like deciding what I wear every day. I don't like it's, it's something I don't, I know when I get up in the morning exactly what I'm going to put on 
it limits like decision fatigue. And it's just one of those things. Like there's not a lot of questions. And that seems to be a small sort of thing. But intentionally putting those types of certainty anchors and, and fighting decision fatigue um, throughout your day fuels it fuels your ability to explore the unknown, to explore the uncertain, and to walk through this sort of Avalon's fog that is um, creativity and, and, and living a creative life. Absolutely. And, you know, it's so you, if you think about the, what, what we're kind of digging into here is okay, well, what do you do at that edge or how do you approach it? Or, and, and what you're saying is, listen, anytime I come to an edge, I already have certain, uh, certainty anchors in place. I have certain patterns that, that work for me that give me some sense of comfort when I'm going to try something new. So you're wearing an at Charlie Gilkey sweatshirt. And, and when you put that on in the morning, that's where you are. You're you're at productive flourishing. You're at the Charlie Gilkey piece of that, and and you're going to go occupy that space. From what you do from there in your office, could be exploring a whole range of things you've never seen. But you've got that anchor. So that's one way, right? There are patterns like that. Another way is how you explore something new or how you you go across the edge. So you know, we don't all want to launch ourselves into uh, a new career every time we want to make a change. We don't want to launch ourselves into uh, a, just a new zone, whether it's a physical zone or it's a relationship zone or, or, or whatever it might be. We just want to do some exploring. Well, what if you have certain questions that you use as your lead in to explore something new? What if you just remember you're supposed to ask questions before you go exploring new land? So that's another habit that doesn't ask you to extend yourself very far, that kind of becomes natural to the way you think. Just like when you put on your, I'm putting this in quotes, uniform mm -hmm. of your hoodie and your armor all shorts, you are putting yourself in this zone to do what you do best, which includes exploring. If you add to that certain questions that allow you to explore new things. And third, the third leg of the stool here, if you know what's important to you, then even if you're exploring new territory, you've got those certainty anchors that remind you where you're headed, why you're heading there, and if, if the apple cart gets upset, that it's all going to be okay. Absolutely. I think there's a fourth piece, if I may add. Sure. It's a mindset piece. Of, and you mentioned, like, it's, their second piece was a mindset piece, knowing that you should be asking questions. Um, mm -hmm. I would say it's either under that or... Um, complementary to that is approaching it from like this perspective of it's okay that you don't know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or you don't know and your job is to find out or just being comfortable with not being competent at a certain point right because you need that safe place to you need a safe place to fail so yeah. that you can find the right places to grow and this is very weird so i think what when people approach an edge that way what they have to do to go past that edge is to let go of knowing what the hell is going on and how to traverse that because they're leaving, even if it's a curb, right? They're leaving, sure. you're, they're taking that step and they may not know, like, you know, whether they're stepping in quicksand or whether they're stepping in, you know, water or whether they're stepping on firm ground. Mm -hmm. um, but if you, I think, can approach it and just say, you know what? I don't know what's there. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to know. I'm not supposed to know. Um, furthermore, if I knew, I wouldn't want to take the step. Sure. 
right? And so I think that gives the freedom so that when you do take that step and you stumble, you're like, oh, I stumbled. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> right? As opposed to like, oh, man, why didn't I make that step? I should have known it was going to. No, you didn't. You didn't know it was going to be there. It was the figuring it out that's the journey. Yeah. You know, so I, I think we've talked about this before, and if we have, we can do the fast forward version. But what we're talking about and this willingness to come to edges, we, we've already we've already described that it's driven by curiosity. It's driven by this possibility of finding something more. I'll just put that in quotes and not identify what something more means. But it's something in our human nature that we've evolved to that says, gee, I wonder if, and then you can finish the sentence any way you want. The research that has been done around luck has some very interesting parallels to this. And most of that research basically looks at people and say, and, and, and categorizes them right off the bat. Are you a person who considers yourself lucky or are you a person who considers yourself not lucky or unlucky? And what they find is that lucky people not only are willing to do the things that we're talking about here, about coming to the edge, uh, being in the habit of exploring that edge, doing it in ways that have a certain level of comfort to that, but when they do it, they're not worried about the penalty for doing it. They're not worried about failure or things not working out. In fact, what they do is the exact opposite. They actually approach it with a certain amount of play in their mindset. Oh, what what might I discover here? Yes, I might have something fortunate happening to me here, but even if I don't, what do I know from past experience? I, I'm guaranteed to get out of this. It's something as simple as, I know I'm going to learn something. Or if it doesn't work out, I'm going to get that great challenge of, how can I look at this not as a negative, but as a potential positive? Or I'm going to learn sooner that that path that I thought was the right one isn't and so I'm going to have the good fortune of picking a new path, which will be better for me and less stressful. And the point is, as they do all this, and everybody's going to do it slightly differently, their mindset is oriented towards a certain playfulness, where most of us, when we think about the edge, are oriented towards fear. And how do we get away from that fear? And so the reason some people, we could call them lucky people or creative people in this case, seem to run towards things rather than away from them is that they're putting them in the context of play. I'll, I'll just use that broadly, but something that has this positive twist rather than this fearful twist. Interesting example here, right? Um, so I've recently become um, a board member of um, Social Venture Partners here in, in um, Portland. So SVP is a, um, you know, there are a lot of franchises across the United States. Um, and I was walking and talking to Angela about it. And I was like, you know, I don't like I'm looking at my calendar and I'm very intentional about commitments that I make. And I'm like, I'm not a hundred percent sure um, how much time this is going to take mm -hmm. and what it's going to displace. Um, but it seems like one of those opportunities that I need to make the time for, for, you know, a bunch of different reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the reason I say that is because again, there's this, there's, there would be a fear-based way, like, okay, is this going to be worth my time? I'm not sure, like, you know, what, what am I going to get out of it, so on and so forth. But, you know, approaching it from a, like, hmm, like there's something here mm -hmm. that um, there's a lot of unknown about what it's going to be. Um, and this is sort of the lucky thing, right? <laughs> 
Um, but it seems like one of those things that I should lean into. And the thing about it is, you know, I was thinking as you were talking about regret, mm-hmm. um, because I think so many people think that they're going to regret the decisions they make and the things they do. Mm-hmm. But when you actually talk to people, you do interviews like what we're doing, or you do conversations and you just say, Hey, Larry, like, what's going on? What do you regret? More often than not, people regret the times they could have explored the edge and did not than when they explored the edge and it took a negative turn for them or they stumbled and fell and figured out that like they need to go back. More often than not, people get to the end of their life and say, I wish I would have tried those things. Yep. Um, then saying, I tried it and it didn't work. The, ex- the exception is for those rare outliers that have to like take that game-winning shot and they miss it. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, like when you're under extreme pressure and you're like all actions depend upon your one choice, then they will often regret in some ways not making that shot or they'll play it over and over in their mind. But most of the rest of us that are not in war winning, game clenching, you know, day winning scenarios, like and it's all on us. I think most of us regret not exploring the edge than yes. the outcomes of exploring the edge. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's and it, it so it, it's funny too because even those people who find themselves in that situation of having you know missed the game-winning shot pretty quickly remember that the reason that happened is because they love the game, and the reason that happened is that their love of the game combined, fused with the effort they put into it that made them so good that they were past the ball with the three seconds left to try to put it in the hoop. And it's not that they're going to forget missing that game-winning shot, but they're also not going to stop themselves from getting back on the court the next day. That would be worse. So over time, they sort through that, oh yeah, could I have done it differently? I wish I had, and so on. But the thing that that moved them in the beginning continues to move them along the way. And, you know, I, I, I just recently read this fascinating book about the ongoing competition fr- through college and then in the pros between Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. And each of them can talk about a situation where, we'll put it in quotes, they missed the game-winning shot. They blew it in some way. But both of them have said time and time again, the just being able to be in that position where you get the chance to be part of that game, you get the chance to take that shot or what is what they live for. And so they kept doing it over and over and over again after that. And even now that they're beyond their basketball careers, they're doing that with their ownership relationships with the team or their marketing relationships with the team. They keep putting themselves in that place. So I look at that, Charlie, and say, these are people who were comfortable coming to their own edges, pushing the limits of what they knew, trying different things. And no matter what happened, they had this sense that that's what life is about. And that that edge was where they felt the most energy. So it was, there was never a guarantee that when you get there, things are going to turn out the way you want. But backing away from that edge was somehow backing away from what's so rich in life, whether you're a basketball player or you are an entrepreneur or you're, you're a sculptor or whatever it is. Why would you do that? Well, the only reason you would do it is if you get the 
uh, if you get fear in your mind rather than, you know, unknown. And this is something I have to do in order to get to the good stuff. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think, you know, um, I think this will be the first real tangent of the conversation, but we're allowed a few tangents. Uh, <laughs> I count on them. <laughs> you know, I've been thinking, because I've been thinking about stories that I've told, I've been, I've been reading about what I've been writing and so on and so forth. And I was like, man, it seems like a lot of my really interesting, fascinating stories ended around 2010. Hmm. And I'm like, and Larry, we've had a similar conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, what is it about that? And I resigned as a commissioned officer in 2010. Mm-hmm. And my life since 2010 have been much more long-term strategic plays. There, there are no game-winning shots, right, mm-hmm. that I have to take. There are no, um, I have to navigate this convoy through an ambush position, and we either win or lose, and lose badly, right, um, sort sure. of scenario. There, there, those things don't exist in my life anymore, right? And it's really interesting because you think about athletes who stay in past their prime, you think about soldiers and military personnel who stay in well after, like, you know, they, they, uh, it's common knowledge that being a soldier is a young person's job, right? Uh, because yep. you, you reach yep. 35, you get kids, you think like that, and you're like, yeah, this is not really, you can't be in Humvees all day, right? Doing this anymore, right? Um, sure. But I've been reflecting on that, and I think it's because once you get on this side of, of, the adventurous life. Most of your adventure is long-term creative exploration and sort of social exploration and things like that. But there are no, there are not those moments. It, it, I, I haven't felt one of those. Everything hinges upon this sort of thing that's going to play out in thirty minutes or an mm-hmm. hour or anything like that. It's like this is going to play out over the course of two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just super interesting because I think um, again tangent. What I've experienced is we can disrupt the creative work we're doing, the deep work we're doing, um, when it starts to become too long, because there is not that sense of maybe, that that sense of I was in that, like we had 30 seconds, and they passed the ball to me, and I had that sort of moment to make it happen. Mm-hmm. You just have these series of battles that you fight every day. And I know people don't like the military stuff with war or with creative stuff, but you have this series of choices that you make every day. Um, and it's easy to lose the magic of those moments because that one choice, that one day doesn't seem to matter. Yeah. You know, it's it interesting. So so I'll give you a, a parallel thought to, to marry with that. I think that's true that, that we uh, – Many of us start in a scenario like like take years where you were in a completely different role with with completely different responsibilities. Thing was different. Uh, the metrics were different. And what's what's fascinating? You, you referenced that that being in the military or being a being a soldier is a young person's game. Yes. And here's the interesting thing. Think about any young person's game, whether we're young in our career, it might not just be an age thing, right? But whenever we're young at something, we tend to see things in a shorter way. So we set targets for ourselves that are really about the most immediate success we can define, the, the closest thing to us that says, yes, if I do that, here's the reward at the end. Um, we lack 
the breadth of experience that comes whenever we spend more time in something. And whenever we spend more time in something, we start to see long range. So it's not just that we set long range goals and we plan. That just becomes a part of the way we think. And in a young person's game, think about just all the things you learned in your roles in the military. The more you learn, the more complex your thinking is about what you could do with that. So what I think is really interesting here, I'll, I'll give you a funny parallel at, that I'm in right now, and that's parenting. My son is about to start college in the fall. My role with him up to this point has been a lot clearer than I thought or I, I gave it credit for. I knew what my job was. This kid was in my house every day. My job was to guide him to be a, a capable, responsible, uh, wonderful adult. Guess what? He's there now. I'm not quite ready for him to be there now. And part of the reason I'm not quite ready for it is I'm realizing that my goals as a, as a parent and even the playing field that he and I now enter as he goes off into his whole life and everything that relates to it is changing. And so my, num my opportunity to communicate with him is stretched out. It's fewer and further between because he's got other things filling his time. He can make his own decisions and so on. My goals for him life-wise have this longer time horizon. And in between, he's in charge of much of that and, and, and I'm not. So it's almost like I just got out of my military commission as, as a parent of a non-adult. And it's not that I don't have new and exciting things ahead. It's that everything about the scale has changed, including my perspective and his perspective. And I think that comes in anything we do. So, you know, a, a Larry Bird or a Magic Johnson could have come to the end of their physical playing career and, and been done with the sport and done with basketball. And instead, their challenges have become different. It's the business side, which takes longer. It's the marketing side that takes longer. It's the whatever side that takes longer. It's not less rewarding. It's just different. So I think what you're saying is absolutely right. And there's just this other piece of it of how we mature as thinkers, we mature as doers in what we do, that's going to change the game. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It doesn't feel quite like that short-term, uh, easily identifiable return that we had before, but it's a good thing in a different way. Absolutely. And to all credit for the military service members out there, as it's not that your stories don't become, well, your stories become different. It's, it's, and so as someone who is having to mentor junior officers and say, like, look, I know you want to be in the field leading troops and doing that. Mm -hmm. um, but you have a time in which you do that, but then you have a time in which you um, take on staff positions and you look at broader pictures and you manage more people. And when you manage more people, you manage more people by leading or by interacting with fewer people. It, it's this weird sort of counter counterintuitive thing. Like right, you right. can't manage 1500 people the same way that you manage 45. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and really, if you're managing 45, you're really managing in the military context, you're really managing about four or five people. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but it's still like the same four or five people, but they're further removed from the things that made this fun in a way. Right. right. Further right. removed from all of those things that, that you see on the commercials. Right. Um, and it's a lot more paperwork and it's a lot more grooming leaders to see what they're going to do over the next three to five years, as opposed to grooming leaders to see if they can accomplish this particular mission. Right. And so it's still that same sense of development, but what, 
your experience is, is different every time. Sure. And some people can never get past that because they, they get out as a captain. I got out as a captain for a different reason, but they're just like, I wanted to be with troops all day, right? That's what I wanted to do. And yeah. I ended up in all these positions and I wasn't out in the field. And I'm like, you probably picked the wrong career track, mm. right? If mm. you want to stay out in the field, you should have stayed enlisted because that's, you know, that's a different route. But even enlisted folks, you know, E7s, E8s and whatever their branch are, they're further removed from the field. It's part of the deal. Sure. So I'm sure. um, not saying that, not saying that for the, for the young people, but just are about that, about the military experience, but you're absolutely right. And thanks for pulling that off. That that's true for no matter what you do. If you're a new author, everything is magical. You, I mean, what I will tell people on this one is that um, when you're just starting out writing or blogging um, or, you know, being an author, you're fueled by that curiosity and passion and just that joy of doing the process. Six to eight years in, that might not be sufficient anymore, right? Mm -hmm. You've explored mm -hmm. the easy wins. You've you got that. And so there's a deeper level of mastery that you have to get. But mm -hmm. much like what we're talking about, what that looks like is fundamentally different, right? Yeah. The yeah. first time you write a blog post and, you know, a thousand people read it, you're over the moon about it. You're like, a thousand people read it. Mm -hmm. The hundredth time you've written a blog post... And ten thousand people read it, like it's it's you become desensitized to it in a way, like it's mm -hmm. it's it's a it's it's in that realm of familiar, right? Um, and there's always a point going back to what we're saying. There's always going to be that edge of what's familiar and what's unfamiliar. Absolutely, and and isn't that isn't that a, okay? So it's it's not that it's not a complicated thing. It's not that there isn't a challenge to shift your thinking or change at an edge, but but these edges are what make life so cool is is that you get to explore something new so you you um wrote an interesting blog that you then did as one of your podcasts where you you read the blog that was it was recent it was called stop lying and start creating mm -hmm. you, the, okay so the example that you gave in there was related to research and so think about anybody who's doing research to launch a new product, to uh, write a book, uh, to sell their art, to figure out where they can, whatever it is. Initially, that research has this function. And the function is, I got to do the research in order to get to whatever it is, fill in the blank, right? Um, but research can have this ongoing role. It can also become your ongoing excuse. So the first time you went and did the research, it helped you to get to some place you really, really wanted to get to, and it was full of all this newness and so on and so forth. As you said in this blog, that research can be uh, become a blinder for you that says, well, gee, I'm still doing the research, but I'm not getting the same charge out of it. Why that? Why is that, right? Um, or I'm, I'm still doing this research, and I know it's going to get me somewhere good, but gee, it cer certainly feels burdensome because it's not going to get me the same rush I had the first time. I would look at all of those as an indicator that you have just arrived at an edge. Yeah, that what you were doing before and why you had to do it hasn't become unimportant. Maybe that same meaning is still there, but something is asking you to shift forward and look at things in a different way to say, how can I expand on this or beyond this? And that's where, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about how do you get going at an edge, whether it's those um, certainty anchors, uh, anchors of comfort or we added to that. And one of the things we added was questions. 
And when you see these signals of why isn't it still working the same way or why don't I feel the same way about it or why am I hitting a wall this time around doing the same stuff when I didn't before, that's when you've got to pursue those questions and other ones and say, what is it that's out there that I haven't yet discovered that's going to make me feel different about this or maybe present some opportunity I, I didn't even expect? It's, so one of the ways I refer to that, Charlie, is th- this is, this is our, our, our fit sense, F-I-T. Mm-hmm. We have this sense that something no longer fits the way it used to. Sometimes that sense is it's out of kilter in a, in a negative way. And sometimes it's a fit sense that says, gee, I think there's something really great out there. I just can't quite figure out what it is. And I, when we, we all have that built in, those of us who tune into that sense of fit benefit from what it tells us about what's possible beyond that. It's a signal to what lies beyond those edges that might be worth pursuing, right? And it's funny, though, when you tune into that. So there's one kind of question you can ask yourself, is, which is, what am I sensing about fit? What does it tell me? And so on. There's another kind of question that you can ask as you do this, and I call them depth check questions, which is, am I looking at these signals in too deep a way? Am I looking at these signals in too shallow of a way? Or is it somewhere in between that I need to be exploring? So the, you know, the deep question would be, how come I don't get the same vibe out of this that I used to? Or now that I'm out of that formal role and in this new role, how come there aren't the rush rewards I used to get? Okay, well, maybe you're asking that question too deeply. And maybe you need to come at it a different way to reveal the kind of excitement that's there. So anyway, I just I thought it would be fun to throw out and and not just say to people, questions can be this great avenue to take you across the edge, but there's such a range of questions you can ask because at the end of the day, it's about, as you said before, the mindset. It's about an inquiry mindset that keeps exploring. It's not about the answers, the hard answers that come from those questions. It's about continuing to be inquisitive about what's going on. You know, that's, that's, I love the depth questions and I'll, I'll give a, a practical a sort of a application here. So I was recently talking to a client who um, had been in a funk, right? And so I, so living the creative life means that you have this much richer range of emotions, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have a lot of highs, but you also have lows, right? This is why we see so much depression and anxiety and so on and so forth amongst people who are practicing creatives, right? And so, you know, I could see in her conversation, she started going to sort of that existential questioning about whether the funk meant something, right? Mm-hmm. And when she was in the wrong sort of mode, I was like, you could just be in a funk. Right. <laughs> yep. And it's okay. Right. It's like when we have to go like to the bathroom, we don't have an existential crisis when we need to go to the bathroom. Right. Um, right. It's just, well, most of us don't, there are contexts, but most of us are not having a deep concern about this. It's like, it's, that's what we do. We experience this. It's part of being human. And I think if you can approach funks that way, now, if it's like a nine month funk, we're talking something different, right? Sure. Um, sure. But especially when you look at post-accomplishment depression and post-accomplishment funks, which I've been doing a lot more research on, which is largely when you say, look at Olympic athletes, when they win medals, they often have depression and funk that follows, right? Mm. And so this is a thing. This is totally a thing that happens. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. people will get into this point of like, I've done that. 
and I feel terrible and I've got a funk. What's wrong with me? Am I doing the wrong thing? And like, no, you could, you're just in a funk, right? Right. You're in a bad mood, drink water. Right. Or, you know, and it's one of those things that obviously if you stay in that state, it's a long time, but we, um, can ask too deep a question based upon the wrong signal. Right. Right. Um, and I think we see another one when people start getting on the struggle bus with their work because it gets hard and they have to dig in and do the work and, you know, they, they cross into that place of not feeling confident about the level of what they're doing. So, um, you know, Larry and I have had a conversation because in some ways our writing is going in different ways. Larry is working on um, writing more blog posts and articles and things like that. He's written two books or three. Is it three now two. or two? Mm-hmm. Two on the fantastic third. books. And he's working on the third, right? Um, and so the skills and the way in which you work on a book are different than the skills in the way that you might work on a 800-word blog post, right? Um, they're different sort of things because that, that piece has to stand alone. Hopefully Larry's okay with me sharing this, right? Absolutely. Um, I'm going the other way after <laughs> – so my journey has been I was an article writer. So, you know, as a philosopher, things like that. You write a lot of things in the sort of 4,000 to 10,000 word thing. That That's sort of the medium in which you stay within. So I learned to write shorter posts. Now, some will argue that my posts still aren't short. And I agree with that, right? <laughs> um, but repracticing and relearning the skills of writing a book is different. And so we're, we're in some ways going in different ways. And there are different struggles. There are different struggles with that because as the person working on the long form piece, it's like, is all of this fitting together? Is it making sense? Am I, mm-hmm. am I telling a coherent reader journey across mm-hmm. all of this, right? Mm-hmm. And that's one way of thinking about it. And how do you show up? for two months or three months or four months for this one thing that you not you don't get the feedback for as you go along, right? And so it's different skills and different way, different data points you gotta look at. Um, I know going the other way from book to blog post, it's like, is this topic interesting enough on its own for people to read it? Is the headline strong enough that people will want to click on it and read it? Did I leave them with a nugget like there, it's so much focused on that shorter term focus and you have to relearn those types of things. And so again, sure. even with your particular domain of expertise, writing or consulting or coaching or art, like painting or whatever it is, you might just switch mediums or presentation styles and end up in that place all over again of, mm-hmm. ah, this is super hard. But when you go to that place of it being super hard, again, it's not necessarily a prompt to fall into existential questioning about whether you really meant to do it in any certain way. You can just not be good at something, yeah, right? Or you can just be unfamiliar with that. And we all, that's this weird thing I said, being a, to live a creative life and to be a creative person is to exist in tension. On the one hand, we crave doing something novel. Um, on the other hand, we're fearful of not being good at something. Sure. It coupled with, <laughs> this is hard for everyone to admit, and, and I'm admitting it as I say it to you. Uh, whenever we want something novel, we subconsciously also want it to be easy. Mm-hmm. Or at least as easy as uh, the things we do and get now are. And so it, you know, here's here's one here's the existential twist to, to go and to go back to what we were saying. Again, we may not be totally conscious of it, but we start to think of almost our total way of doing right now as our certainty anchor. 
that if I have to change the way I my my you know schedule goes, the way I approach projects, how long it takes, if I if I have to change all of that, something is wrong. It's got to be something external to me that's wrong. But it it turns out that what we're typically doing is is treating our whole our whole mode of operation right now as our certainty anchor rather than a few important things in it. So to tie it back to what you just shared as, as this experience of you're going from, from shorter writing to the long format writing of a book and I'm going the other direction, part of my problem with writing short-term pieces because um, uh, two of the the writing venues that I have are working for publications, in one case, Inc. Magazine. They have a very particular audience. They have a very particular way that they want to do things. They even have a particular way that they want headlines to appear. And how was I coming at it? I was coming at it with these two thoughts in mind. Oh my God, I'd love to write for this magazine. I've read it for decades. I, I, I mean, this, these are my people who read it. This would be awesome. That's the thing that attracts us, right? And then I was immediately saying, but surely my headlines are better. Surely they don't really mean, you know, 750 words when I think it's so much better in, in 1500. So I was taking my way of doing things and not clearing it out to try something new, but trying to force fit the process so that I could still get that great reward, but I didn't have to change anything. I didn't really have to change anything. And one of the big breakthroughs that I had to see that and to see a different way was having a conversation with you. So where you said, well, let me tell you what it's like from that other perspective. And I, and I could do the same. So it's really interesting because all of us get caught in these places where we think we're being open-minded because we're really being open-minded about the, the reward or the new possibility that, that generates the reward. When we have to, what we really need to do is go a little bit further to be more open in the broadest sense and decide what other things we can not let go of but loosen up a bit so they aren't anchoring us down in the negative way while remembering the most important ones so that we're not just blowing in the wind with with no anchors at all. And it's always this, this dance back and forth between those things. So it's really interesting. At the very beginning of our conversation, you said, okay, well, what are these three ways that we can approach this edge and uh, think about this in a whole new way? And And what I find most interesting about our conversation is that had we not talked about it as openly as we just did, I don't think the people who are listening would be with us. I don't think they would be able to relate to their particular pain points at the edge or what's worked for them or what hasn't. And I don't think they would appreciate what we're about to talk about, which are what are those three ways you can do this? And I'll say them simply, and then I'll let you dig in. The first is, um, the, I, th I call these the three acts of creation. How do you get creating? How do you create something new, which often requires creating in some new way? And the very first act of creation is choice. And it's that whole idea of remembering that in everything you do, there is a choice. And there are choices even within your pre-existing patterns. The things you aren't thinking about as choices, you think about them because I just do that. Every morning I get up and do that. Every day I do that. I just do it. But every time you do it, it's a choice. And there's power in that choice. And it leads to the second act of creation. And we've talked a lot about this in this conversation. And that is reaction. When I get the result back from having made that choice, having pursued it, 
how do I react to it? And how do I tune into why am I reacting that way? Could I do it in a different way? Is there something more to be gained by reacting differently than I might first have or than I'm used to doing? So we've got this choice, which is a powerful act. We've got the reaction is a powerful act. Both of them, all they require is for you to be tuned in to what's going on and then attuned to acting in accordance with what you notice. It, they're very straightforward ideas, but we tend to um, give up the power in these things by not being active in our choice and our reaction. And the final act of creation is improvisation, because guess what? When you get to the edge, you're going to have to change the way you do things in some way. It's probably going to end up being changes that are bigger than you expected, but those changes usually happen gradually, not going off a cliff, just going off a curb at a time. And improvisation means we don't have a formula for how to do this. We don't know exactly what's going to happen, but the best improvisational actors and comics and, and people who use this as part of their performance careers are those who enter it assuming it's going to be fun, that there's something playful about it. And we should be able to do that in our work too. So if we rem remember that we have this choice that we can consciously react rather than knee-jerk react. And if we realize that every time we come to the edge, we're going to have to improvise in some way, we actually make ourselves more powerful as we move towards new things. You know, I love the way that you put that because I'm, I'm a sucker for a good framework, right? Because <laughs> we, we started with saying this is the foundation of the conversation, but I actually think in the way in which we got to it, it's the um, it's the capstone of the conversation. Because when we look at the different things that we've talked about in the different buckets, they fall within those buckets of choice, reaction, and improvisation. Absolutely. Um, whether it's the stumbling that happens, whether it's the reaction. So it's, you know, um, it's, it's a great capstone in this way. And what I'll say um, is the first act is the choice, right? And mm -hmm. that's the way we do it. This is where I'm going to go existential, okay? Not choosing is itself a choice. Yes. Right? If you come to the creative edge and you're like, ah, I can't do it, I'm going to back away, that's a choice. And that's where when I mentioned choice and when I mentioned regret earlier, that's where I want to pull it out because I think some people, we have this tendency to think that we, we, we pick a frame, say our status quo, and anything different is the choice that you have to make, mm -hmm. as opposed to understanding that maintaining the status quo is the choice, mm -hmm. right? Um, or is a choice. Um, mm -hmm. And so when you really look at where you are in this, there's, there's really a two frames, like choosing to remain on this side of comfort, on this side of certainty, on this side of control, or whatever's pulling you to keep it, that itself is a choice just like choosing to do something different is a choice. And yep. so what I would like people to think about on this one is what happens when you take both choices and you compare the positives and the negatives of one choice to the respective positives and negatives of another choice? Because what we do, and this is a, a trip that we have in our wiring, is a lot of people when they're coming from a fearful approach, and this, you mentioned this when you're getting on the, on the thing about um, luck, what we do is we approach the new choice and we look at all the bad things for the new choice and compare that to the good things of our current scenario. Mm -hmm. 
right? We don't compare the negatives of our current scenario to the negatives of the choice or the positives of the new thing to the positives of, the of, the, of, of our current thing. And I think when you learn to do that, you see that um, you're always in an edge, in a way. Yep. Right? You're always in an edge. It's kind of like the journey of a thousand miles. Like the way Americans or the way Westerners have translated the journey of a thousand miles or the sort of the, the Taoist journey of a thousand miles, what we say is a journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. Mm -hmm. That's actually, I don't think, the best way to understand that line. Right. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've read several several commentaries on this. The way that we might be better to understand that is the journey of a thousand mile begins beneath the feet, mm. which means you're already standing on that journey. Yep. What step you take? Well, that's the choice, but you don't have a choice to be on the journey because you're already there. Right. And so I understand why we have the, the more popular version of it begins beneath or it, it, sorry that it starts with one step because we're encouraging people to start. Sure. But I think there's a richer depth when you can say, you're already there. Yep. What are you going to do about it? Well, it's funny. To your very point, and, and this is kind of bringing together your, your last few comments, we, we approached these three acts of creation as, as kind of a beginning. And then you said, you know, they really, they really stand well as a capstone to this. And the, the parable that you're just referring to of this journey of a thousand, of a thousand miles is that it's continuous, it's perpetual. In, it, you could even look at it as circular, where ev there's always a new beginning, but it's within this, this same cycle because the choice, the how you react to it, the need or the level at which you have to improvise, it's, it doesn't just happen in one cycle and then you reach the summit and you plant your flag and you're done, right? You don't just end your military career having been a success in doing that and you're done. As a human being, your job is to continue forward. And no matter what it looks like or what the rewards look like, it will always involve choice, reaction, and improvisation. It always will. And the more we recognize that that that's the case, right? That the journey's beginning under your feet, it's always under your feet. And the more we not only embrace it, but we look at it in a positive and playful way. And I, I'm not trying to be Pollyanna here and say everything about it is, is a plus, but to look at it with that belief that something exciting, something new, something good is going to come out of it is the very thing that allows us to overcome the fear of one fear is exploring new things. The other fear is leaving the habit that we're in right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's interesting how we lay, I think when we use the word play, mm. it's agnostic about the difficulty of the play. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I'm glad you pulled that out because we can say, yes, we need to approach that playfully and it can be hard as hell. Right. Sure. Um, it can be like, you know, I'll use um, sports because it's a common thing, but like those things that you do, like it's hard. It is super hard to do this, but you're still playing. Yeah. You're still playing a game and you realize, you know, that sense of joy and that sense of, um, you know, everything that goes into the game, you're still playing. And so, yes, saying approach it playfully doesn't mean to necessarily approach it and think about how it can be easy and happy making and things like that. It can be sure. hard as hell play that's still fundamentally worth doing and where you're going to grow the most. Yes. So I, you know, I'll tell you this, this one thought that's in my head that, uh, 
perfectly represents what you're talking about. There's this terrific book by a guy named John Hunter, mm-hmm. and the title of the book is World Peace and Other Fourth Grade Achievements. And the book is about this uh, – he, he has taught third and fourth graders for 20 years or more now. And every time he gets a new class somewhere, you know, into the middle of the fall when they're they're settled in and they're starting to get those routines, right? The newness of the grade is passed and they've got those routines and they and they know how to execute, they know how to get the grades, they know how to please the teacher and everything else. He introduces this six to eight week game he calls World Peace. And it is literally a game that's three-dimensional. It has these four levels, these lucite panels that are, are are raised above one another and and one is below the sea and one is sea level and one is the earth and one is up in the sky and anyway it's a really interesting thing to look at but these are fourth graders and he hands them cards with 50 problems on it that are actually real global problems that adults are trying to face and he says hey i want to introduce you to this game Oh, and by the way, in the course of the game, your job is to solve these problems. And everybody has to be part of the solution. And the solution can't leave anybody lesser than what they started out. Do it any way you want. So he has actually flipped this challenge that we see as adults of, oh my gosh, look at these terrible problems that face the globe by starting with the, and what if we played a game? How does that sound? Would you rather do that than than look in your textbook? Okay, let's engage. And he's engaging the same challenges that we as adults face with fear, but starting with that foot forward of how could this be playful? And it doesn't mean that as they go through that game, it's all joy and screaming and and happiness. It's the mindset of play. And I think that's exactly what you're describing. That's fantastic. And then that seems like a great place to issue a invitation or a challenge to our um, listeners. And so as the guest, Larry, you get to um, invite or challenge our listeners um, to do something based upon what we've talked about from this episode. So here's your moment. What would you invite or challenge our listeners to do um, within the next week of hearing this? I've got it for you. Okay, so this is kind of interesting. And and if you think back through this thread of trying to bring yourself to the edge, trying to see things in a different way or new possibilities, and one of the means for doing that is question, here is a challenge I have for you. It's called create your own change the W question. And here's where it means instead of saying why, say what or how. And it comes from this story I heard. Um, uh, it, it's it's traced back to the philosopher Nelson Goodman. And he wrote this essay that was titled, When is Art? W-H-E-N, When is Art? Because whenever there had been a discussion around art that he was a part of, the question was always, what is art? So he changed the W is the way that, that I, I think of this. It went from what is art to when is art. So my challenge to you as listeners is, Think about a question that you're faced with in work. Think about a question that you're asking yourself as you try to move forward to an edge or beyond an edge. And take that question and change the W. Use a different prompt and see how it gets you thinking differently. Larry, thanks so much for joining me today. As always, it's a blast, and I look forward to our next one. Same, Charlie. Thanks. All right, listeners. So you heard it from Larry. Consider a problem or an opportunity that you've been chewing on for a little bit. 
take that problem and if it's a what problem, change the W. Is it a who? Is it a where? Is it a when? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll let you change it to a how as well, right? Um, but take that problem or an opportunity and change the W. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.